whilst the account of Noah and the flood is well known to us, uh, I want to think not so much about the quantity of water and the amazing difference that the flood made to the Earth's environment. I want us rather to look at three important principles that we can draw from this account. First of all, God's judgment. God was obviously judging the world at this time, but it was most important warning. I see Richard's put a warning sign on the front of the uh, um, news sheet, but I'm not quite sure what it's warning us about. (laughs) Impending houses sliding down the hill, I think. But it's God's judgment. There's a warning here, and it's the most important warning we'll ever get. And then secondly, I want us to have a look at the principle of the people God uses. Because if it's a Christian, you know, we say we want to be used of God. And if you claim to be a Christian and don't want to be used of God, then I suggest you're probably not a Christian. Because, you know, we're here to, to worship and then we're here to serve. And Noah was a very special man there. And then thirdly, I want us to think of the atonement. We've just sung about full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. In one sense, the atonement... That is the saving work of Jesus Christ, the covering of the precious blood, is the most important issue there is in the world. So, each one of those I know is a sermon on its own, but uh, let's see how they're brought together in this historic event of the flood. First of all, we've got the principle of God's judgment here. Put simply, God has always, from the time of the fall, made a way whereby men can be accepted by him whereby sin can be forgiven. Uh, And if we ignore that grace, then judgment follows. It's the pattern of Scripture. Now, we know from observation that in our world there are some sins that seem to have less impact than others. They're still sins, but some are obvious and, and others are not so obvious. But in the passage that we've read, we find there was gross sin. It wasn't just people being a bit mischievous or misbehaving or just slipping up, as it were, the passage says there was gross sin. In fact, the population of the earth had so corrupted themselves that Noah and his family were the only ones that were fit, as far as God was concerned, to be saved. I wonder whether you've ever thought, how many people were lost in the flood? We know eight were saved. The Bible says that was a few. My dad always said, if anyone says something's a few, it's eight because that's what went into the ark. But what about the alternative? How many actually perished? We don't know, do we? What was the population of the earth at that time? You tend to think, in a childlike thought, there was a few hundred people knocking about. Uh, But you see, people have been breeding for 1,700 years. And uh, it's reckoned. Henry Morris, he wrote a fairly definitive book on the flood, didn't he? And uh, he estimates the population to be around... One billion. That's far more than I expected. Other people seem to make a similar estimation, some a bit lower, uh, and perhaps one or two a little bit higher. So we're not far out there. And I suppose you could work that out if if you've got the science of population growth. The point is, we mustn't think of a few hundred people being drowned. This was a mega deluge. And also, when we think in that way, it begins to have an impact on people's understanding of evolution. Because, again, I'm not a scientist in in any sense of understanding uh, population figures, but those who are are more skilled than I am confirm that if there had not been a flood, 
we'd almost be standing shoulder to shoulder with our noses in the air trying to get oxygen. There would be so many people on the earth. And doing a calculation backwards, it shows that there were very few people around just after the flood. And of course there were, there were eight people. And um, it's perhaps something that people don't like to bring up very often because it goes against evolutionary thinking. But back to our heading of judgment. See, there are a lot of people out there defying God. Only Noah was right before God. It must have been a difficult place to live. You know, it's, it's not easy to live in this world today. But we're fortunate to live where we do. And, and look at us, we're in a chapel with, with a few people here. We've got one another. And we know there are other churches, Bible-believing churches. It wasn't like that. Noah was the only one. And if they had, and of course they didn't as such, but if they had a church to go to, he was probably the only one who turned up. In fact, it was horrendous corruption in marriage. It says in verse 3, the sons of God married the daughters of men. There's some debate over what that means. Um, but it is interesting that usually the words sons of God are, are used in relation to angels. Of course, that would be fallen angels. And whether there were some uh, nasty things going on there, I don't know. The state of humanity is summed up in verse 5. It says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 says, The earth was corrupt before God. There could be a lot of people there were saying, Well, I don't mind what goes along, as long as you don't hurt me. No, it was before God. That's what counted here. Now, Let's go back to the time again. We're 1,700 years after creation. And yet, Noah was born 126 years after Adam's death. It makes you think so. So, Noah's father could have known Adam for 56 years. They were around together. It must have been a great day when Adam died, because normally your whole family come together. Imagine that. Adam's died, okay, we've all got to go. Uh, but I guess it wasn't quite like that. Because it's amazing that they were so close and were told what God had done. They were told about creation. Because just ask your dad and go and see Adam. He was there, he's the first man. They were so close to people who had a, a, a fundamental, sound knowledge of what God had done, and yet they were the most wicked generation. Does that not show us something of the strength of the old nature within our hearts that people with such knowledge still rebelled against God? So God's principles of judgment. What did God do? Now note these things carefully, what he did. The first thing that God did when it comes to judgment, he lengthened out the days. Lengthened out the days of his impending judgment. Methuselah is mentioned there, isn't he? That was Noah's grandfather. His name means until it comes. That's prophetic, isn't it? Why would parents name their child until it comes when they didn't know what was coming or when it was coming? Or... But that's what they did. The Lord had a hand in that. And God enabled that man, remember, until it comes, to live the longest of anyone who's ever lived. God was lengthening out his days until it comes. Well, it's not going to come this year, not going to come next year. I will lengthen out my mercy. What a picture of God's patience and mercy. Do you know, if you was Methuselah and you died today, you were born in 1053. Gives you an idea of, uh, you've been knocking around a bit, and you've seen a few things. Uh, it's amazing. 
But what's that to eternity? That, that's what Christians have got. We're going to live forever. You know, Methuselah's name comes up from time to time in sermons. It comes up in quizzes. But few realise the significance of his age. He lived long because of the patience and the mercy of God. Delaying, as it were, that judgment. Will these people repent? So that's the first thing God did. He lengthened out the days. The second thing God did in judgment was that he warned. He came to Noah and said, Noah, build this, this ark. And we read elsewhere, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He didn't have to say anything, really. Building this great ark, and people would come and look and say, what are you doing? So I'm building an ark. Why? God told me to. Why? Because it's be a flood. Why is it going to be a flood? Because people are wicked. And, and he preached this, and he built this. About 120 years of warning. Methuselah's long life, mercy, grace, the warning of Noah. And then what else did he do? It's the second thing then. Third thing is he made a way of escape. Gave him the ark. That's what he was building it for. And fourthly, judgment came. You see how God was delaying it, putting it off as it were. But judgment came. In fact, it's so final that the scripture says, and God shut the door. Noah didn't shut the door. God shut the door. And then it was too late. And that principle still stands good today. God has lengthened the time of his return. He's still showing patience day by day. When it comes to warning, he's warned for over 2,000 years by faithful preachers, the lives of Christians, by the message of the Bible, and even nature that surrounds us. Everything shouts to the existence of God, and we preach the gospel that, that we need to repent and believe and cast our all on him because Christ has done this great saving work. And then he's provided an ark, hasn't he? It's Jesus Christ is our ark. In him is our only refuge, the saviour of sinners. We may run to him and find refuge and shelter and forgiveness. But judgment will come. God will bring things to a conclusion when he comes in the clouds of bright glory. In any event, we read after death, the judgment. So there are some principles of God's judgment. Secondly, look at the man that God used. And this will be a shorter point, because I know Richard is going through various characters in Hebrews 11, and he will come to Noah uh, very soon. So he's going to look at it from Hebrews 11. Um, so we've mentioned Noah's ancestors, but ancestors don't make us what we need to be today. You know, quite often you hear someone on television or radio saying something that is uh, derogatory concerning the Bible or concerning God. Do a little bit of research and you find their father was a minister or their grandfather was a, was a minister. And, you know, you can't pass this down through the generations. We're all born in sin, just as Noah. So how did Noah come to be the one that escaped the judgment of God? Well, Noah means this one will comfort us. He was, the scripture says, an heir of righteousness. He was a man of faith. He believed what God told him. He trusted in God. He was a man who stood out from the crowd. He was a man who took God at his word. We know this because not only have uh, we got this account on record, but in the New Testament we read in Hebrews, by faith, Noah warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared the ark to the saving of his house. There's a great economy of words there when it says he prepared an ark. That sounds, you know, done the dishes. 
No, 120 years of hard graft here. No timber yard, no bags of nails, no electric drill or saw, no dockyard. A number of years ago, we visited the Creation Museum in America, and uh, they've got kind of a, they've built the front part of the ark, and you see the great timbers that were required and the, the huge joints that were made. Um, a lot of work went into that. As I say, it took about 120 years. And all that time, people could have repented. But Noah was faithful, and that's what the Lord's looking for. Men and women of faith and who are faithful. 2 Peter says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I know it's not an excuse, but we have some encouragement here, don't we? That Noah preached faithfully, and he's commended for that faithfulness, not necessarily for the number of converts. We should still look for converts, but we should be faithful. I wonder if he did have any converts, and they died before the flood. We don't know. He was called to be faithful, and he was. One wonders if Noah almost became a tourist attraction. You know, let's go and see the crazy man building a boat. And so we'll have a day out, and we go and look at him, and we'll have a laugh at him, and the huge size. I remember doing this story with the um, young people a few years back, and we, we got a bit of string. Uh, it was the length of the ark and the width of the ark, and it went somewhere from, I think, near the co-op right down to the river skirt. Um, remember, too, it's three floors high, and it went from about here over to the parish church in the way of width. The principle is that God will use men and women of faith. And faith is seen, yes, by what we believe, but it is seen more so in what we do. Because we can be believers in certain things and not do it. We're meant to be not only hearers of the word, but doers. We're not called to build an ark. We're, point, we're called to point people to the ark, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Noah was a man of faith, a man who feared God. And God still looks for such. But thirdly, I want us to see this principle of the atonement. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's God's word for the covering of our sin. Not only the covering of our sin, but God's satisfaction that his wrath has been spent on that sin. That his holiness and his justice are satisfied. And the word atonement literally means covering. Now, I've mentioned this point before in passing in, a, in other sermons when we've been looking at the, the saving work of Christ or uh, perhaps thinking about the cross. But it's interesting again to see it embedded in the account in which we have before us. Because we don't read, do we, of the word of atonement here. But it's there in verse 14. Verse 14, the instruction was, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms or nests or pens shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. It's that word pitch uh, in the Hebrew. It is the word that is used elsewhere for atonement. It's not the word that's usually used for pitch find pitch three or four times when it means literally pitch and it's a different Hebrew word this is the word they use for atonement uh, it wouldn't have made sense I suppose but it would have been accurate to translate it uh, that thou shalt make an, an atoning covering uh, but pitch makes sense as long as we look into it and, and see what was being said here can you imagine this great vessel 120 years 
uh, and it's finished his three sons and Noah have been kind of banging away and sawing away and whatever else they had to do and when they finished Noah said to his sons now paint it imagine this great vessel and you've got to paint it well, you haven't got any paint you have to pick that slimy pitch stuff up you've got to collect it and you've got to paint the whole of the outside of this vessel that would have taken a good while couldn't go and buy a brush or a spray it had to be dug up and it had to be put on this vessel I think you imagine when they just finished that when we finished that we was finally done and now do the inside you say well what's the point you've got you've got to do it all over again on the inside what's the point of doing the inside because it's the outside that counts well that's what that's what God required them to do Noah did that because it was God's provision for keeping them safe um, and, and so we need the covering of the precious blood of Christ. That is God's covering for us that we might be saved from God's righteous judgment. You know, when God looked down during the flood time, he saw a, a dirty old wooden box. A very big one, that's what he saw. But when he saw that, he, he saw Noah, as it were, through the covering that he had appointed. And my friends, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as we are exactly. If we're Christians, he sees us through the covering of what he has provided. In other words, he sees us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he sees us in, through the blood, we are perfect before him. That's not how we are to ourselves. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's God sees us. And Noah, when he got up in the morning and he rubbed his eyes and he made his coffee or whatever he did, uh, when he looked inside this great vessel when he looked at the wall he saw the same covering because when he looked up to God as it were he looked up through the atoning work the covering and my friends we can only look up to God through the saving atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ his precious shed blood the ark that covering was the only means of salvation it was purpose built we see all these pictures, don't we, of the ark with a, a nice kind of rounded front and a giraffe sticking his head out um, and the odd, odd elephant somewhere. But, of course, that wasn't... Uh, I'm not going to go into what the ark was, but, I mean, it was, it was just a long box, really, wasn't it? Because it wasn't, didn't need a pointed end. It wasn't going anywhere. It was designed just to keep them afloat amidst all the raging sea that was going on and, and to gently put them down where God decided that should be. And that covering on the ark, that's what took the battering, wasn't it, of the waves and the water. And so it is on the cross of Calvary. Christ there took the battering of our judgment upon himself. He took the wrath of God on the cross. And that's where we get the full meaning of atonement. Atonement means, yes, he covered our sin. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross. We bear it no more. But also, he took the very wrath of God that was our due. Yeah, the ark didn't look very pretty. If you saw it moored on the Thames and you thought, we'll go for a cruise today, you thought, I'm not getting in that one. It was just a black mess, really, wasn't it? A box covered in pitch. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? No one saw that, except the high priest once a, uh, once a year. When they moved, it was covered in skins, two or three different types of animal skins. And so when it was moved, people looked at that and thought, well, we're told what's under there. We've never seen it. All they saw 
was these rough old skins. Didn't look anything much. Yet underneath was this golden box uh, with, the, with the, the angelic wings. Underneath that was where, where God came and met with the high priest. It was something very special and something very wonderful. But all they saw was the dirty old skins. And my friends, isn't that like Jesus Christ? When we see him by faith on the cross, Scripture says when we see him, there's nothing that we should desire him. When we see him on the cross, Scripture says he was marred more than any man. Put his hands and his feet nailed to the cross with his beard ripped off and a crown of thorns on his head. His back had been ploughed. Not a nice sight, really. And yet to the Christian... He's altogether lovely. He's amazing, isn't it? That such an awful sight should be such a wonderful sight because he was hanging there for me. And wherever you look at the ark, you see Christ as the saviour of sinners. A little bit of application, but what have we looked at so far? The principle of God's judgment. He has patience, Methuselah. He warns Noah. He makes provision for the ark, but judgment comes. And secondly, we've seen the principle of the people that God uses. Men and women of faith. Noah feared God, and he got on with the job. And then we see the principle of atonement. God providing the covering of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So a little bit of application. Those of us who know and love the Lord, let's try and serve him like Noah. May we be God-fearing more than man-fearing, not afraid of being ridiculed, busy in the service of the Lord. Have we been busy? I know many years ago I used to do lectures on recruiting and how people should conduct interviews. One of the things we used to say there was ask people what they've done in the past about various skills or whatever, because that will tell you what they're going to do in the future. No good saying to people, what are you going to bring to this job? And they'll reel out all the things you want to hear. Ask them what they've done, because that's, that's evidence. We can test ourselves like that. We can say, well, I'll be busy in the service of the Lord. It gives me something to do. No, look back and ask yourself in the past year, what have you done for the Lord? How have you served him? Because if things stay as they are, that's how you've got to serve him for next year. You say, well, I haven't done a lot. No, you're still not going to do a lot. We have to take note of these things and say, Noah was a, a, a man who just asked the Lord, uh, no doubt, many times how things should be. And God told him and he just did it. We're to be faithful to the Lord. We're to be faithful to the unsaved. We're not faithful if we don't tell them of the ark. It would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? Just living round the corner from, from Noah and... Uh, there, there you see him building his great ark and his neighbour comes along and says, what are you doing? Oh, he's building a boat. That'd be an awful thing, wouldn't it? He goes, I'm building a boat because it's going to flood. You coming in? We have to be faithful. But secondly, can we not note that God's patience will come to an end very soon? God shut the door of the ark and that was it. My spirit will not always strive with men. This lengthening out of the day will come to a conclusion. We don't know when. Scripture talks about wars and rumours of wars and famine and pestilence and all sorts of things. We could say, well, we see plenty of that. My friend, if you lived in Nigeria and didn't know whether militants were coming in the night to kill you or to uh, kidnap your children, 
if you lived in China, if you lived in so many countries, you would think he was in the tribulation. We need to be sure that we're ready, that we're in Christ, we're in the ark, the only saviour of sinners. I wonder how many atheists and agnostics stood round the ark when it started raining. Don't think so. No, they believed. They believed then all of a sudden, no, I was right. Don't forget it hadn't rained until then. So what's all this? It's what Noah said was going to happen. No agnostics, no atheists there, and there won't be when God returns. There may be some who claim to be atheists and rail against God. There's some out there now. They say they don't believe in him, but they want to have a good word with him when they see him. And he thinks they're very confused. But finally this morning, my friends, there's grace here. In verse 7 of our reading, uh, it says, And the Lord said to Noah, Come thou, and all thy house into the ark. And I think that's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? Can you imagine, 120 years he's been doing this. He's pitched it on the outside, he's pitched it on the inside. All these animals have come. God brought them there. They've gone in two by two. A lot of them went in by seven by seven. And there's all this noise, probably a bit smelly as well. There's lots of stuff going on. And Noah thinks, what now? And God said to him, come. Come now into the ark and thy house. And my friend, it's the same today. God's gracious invitation. Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden. Call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. That's what the Lord says today to anyone who's not saved. Come. Come to the ark. Come to Christ while the door is open. Amen.